0: Going on, food eaters. This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast, and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is the 26th episode. What's on the agenda for today? Well, you can tell from the title that during the next 45 minutes or so, I'll be talking about the dreaded C-word, cancer. Not a cheery subject, but when it comes to food, it's a very pertinent one. Yes, foods can kill you, but not just any foods. A new study reveals the detrimental links between the common Western diet and disease, but you still have choices, ultimately. At the end of the show, once again, I'll take a peek at a new food product. For newcomers to the podcast, here's some info about me. I have a 30-plus year background in chemistry education, food testing, and food chemical research. And for much of that time, I've had a fascination, some may even call it an obsession, with processed foods, what's in those foods, and how they may be affecting our health. I think this is still the only podcast that is devoted to looking behind the commercial food curtain at all of those strange, unusual, and sometimes dangerous ingredients that wind up in many of the foods stocked on the shelves of our grocery stores. This is a 100% free podcast. Hey, just put that money back in your pocket. There are no sponsors, financial supporters, or Kickstarter campaigns. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, and to keep it that way, this program does not work with any business, commercial product, or organization. All I ask of you is to listen, and if you are informed, educated, or entertained by the content, Please let others know through social media or even the old-fashioned way, word of mouth. Website and contact information for the podcast is provided at the end of the show. Okay, let's get this show going. We're going to be talking about cancer. So, I know that this show isn't going to be warm, fuzzy, and full of laughs. Cancer, that's a serious subject. The number two killer of Americans but the connection between cancer and food has been getting a bunch of attention in the media in the last four months due to a mind-blowing study that was published in February 2018. More about that later. I've dedicated this podcast to exploring old and new food ingredients, food labels, the processed food industry, common processed foods, government oversight, and general news stories on those subjects. Regarding the news stories, about six months ago, I started to get hundreds of articles using a news feed service. Stories pour in every week, hundreds of them. Then I have to sift through them, save the ones that seem pertinent to the podcast, and then categorize them into about a dozen headers. That helps me to see what's really buzzing out there. Then I can easily select a subject matter for specific shows. Given all this material, I've decided to publish a new show about every three months on this podcast, using some of the hot stories covering a specific topic, hence today's show on cancer. Being the number two killer in the U.S., cancer probably affects pretty much everyone through individual diagnoses to knowing friends, relatives, or co-workers who are dealing with it. Personally, my mother died of cancer when I was 13, I have another relative who had breast cancer within the last few years. My wife had several close friends who died of liver and brain cancers in recent years. It's a downright formidable disease with many variations and many causes. Of course, there are the the usual mentioned genetic factors. Did your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have cancer? But actually, how important are the genetic factors? Nowadays, most genomic scientists and medical researchers agree that having a genetic predisposition to cancer only increases the risk of getting the disease from about 5 to 15% for most cancers. There are other factors at play that can trigger gene expression, such as the environment. For example, what carcinogens or cancer agents are in the air, the water, and the soil? How much radiation do we we receive, both natural and artificial? What cancer-causing chemicals are in your workplace? And what carcinogens are in the food we eat and the water we drink? We live in a world of complicated exposures, any one of which, or in combination, can alter our biology. So let's get started uh, with the definition of cancer and get some general background on this subject. Here's what the American Cancer Society has to say on the subject. This is from their website. Cancer can start any place in the body. It starts when cells grow out of control and crowd out normal cells. This makes it hard for the body to work the way it should. There are many types of cancer. It's not just one disease. Cancer can start in the lungs, the breast, the colon, or even in the blood. Cancers are alike in some ways, but they are different in the ways they grow and spread. The cells in our bodies all have certain jobs to do. Normal cells divide in an orderly way. They die when they are worn out or damaged, and new cells take their place. Cancer occurs when cells start to grow out of control. The cancer cells keep on growing and making new cells. They crowd out normal cells. This causes problems in the part of the body where the cancer started. Cancer cells can also spread to other parts of the body. For instance, cancer cells in the lung can travel to the bones and grow there. When cancer cells spread, it's called metastasis. When lung cancer spreads to the bones, it's still called lung cancer. To doctors, the cancer cells in the bones look just like the ones from the lung. It's not called bone cancer unless it started in the bones. Most cancers form a lump called a tumor or a growth. But not all lumps are cancer. Doctors take out a piece of the lump and look at it to find out if it's cancer. Lumps that are not cancer are called benign. Lumps that are cancer are called malignant. Now note here, benign tumors aren't cancerous. They can often be removed and in most cases do not come back. Cells in benign tumors do not spread to other parts of the body. Back to the website. There are some cancers like leukemia, which is cancer of the blood, that don't form tumors. They grow in the blood cells or other cells of the body. For each type of cancer, there are tests that can be done to figure out the stage of the cancer. As a rule. A lower stage, such as stage 1 or 2, means that the cancer has not spread very much. A higher number, such as stage 3 or 4, means it has spread more. Stage 4 is the highest stage. In older adults, many cancers are linked to lifestyle related risk factors, such as smoking, being, overla- <laughs> being overweight, eating an unhealthy diet, not getting enough exercise, and drinking too much alcohol. Exposures to things in the environment such as radon, air pollution, chemicals in the workplace, or radiation during medical tests or procedures also play a role in some adult cancers. These types of risk factors usually take many years to influence cancer risk, so they are not thought to play a large role in cancers in children, teens, or young adults. Cancer occurs as a result of changes, that is, mutations, in the genes inside our cells. Genes, which are made of DNA, contain the instructions for nearly everything our cells do. Some genes control when our cells grow, divide into new cells, and die. Changes in these genes can cause cells to grow out of control. Note, keep the idea of mutation in the back of your head for later. Some people inherit gene changes from a parent that increase their risk of certain cancers. In people who inherit such a mutation, this can sometimes lead to cancer earlier in life than would normally be expected the causes of gene changes in certain adult cancers are sometimes known such as the lifestyle related and environmental risk factors mentioned above but the reasons for gene changes that cause most cancers in children teens and young adults are not known. Many are likely to be just random events that sometimes happen inside a cell without having an outside cause. Still, There are some known causes of cancer in young adults. For instance, exposure to ultraviolet light from the sun or from tanning beds can increase the risk of melanoma and other skin cancers. Infection from some types of human papillomavirus, HPV, can increase the risk of cervical and some other cancers. Infection with human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, can raise the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, carposy sarcoma, and some other cancers. And finally, treatment with chemotherapy or radiation therapy for a childhood cancer can increase the risk of getting a second cancer, especially leukemia, later on. Still, these and other known risk factors probably account for only a small portion of cancers in young adults overall. So that's what the American Cancer Society has to say about the causes of cancer. Now, do you remember that the reason tumors grow is because cells mutate, then go rogue, that is uncontrolled growth. Some medical researchers think that cells have to be mutated several times before they become candidates for tumor growth. Other medical researchers think that it's a failure of cells to repair and regulate themselves or the failure of the immune system to kill off mutated cells. Think about this question for a moment. Why do some people get cancer while others don't? I've always wondered about that, uh, given that genetics plays really a minor role in the disease process. Could it be just that some people's immune systems are weak Could it be that our bodies produce mutated cells all the time based on exposure to external conditions like radiation, carcinogens, etc.? But our bodies are able to repair, disable, or obliterate the mutant cells? It's kind of like why some people are more prone to viruses and infections than others. Is getting cancer just a bad roll of the dice, or is the key difference the response of our immune system? A strong immune system wards off disease, while a weak one allows the body to succumb to it. One observation pointing to a weak immune system is that many people get cancer late in life, after their immune systems have lost efficiency. Another question that's interesting to ponder is whether cancer is a modern disease brought about by humans' technological advances, or has it been a scourge since the beginning of humankind. Medical Express in 2010 published an article online called, Cancer is a Modern Disease. They point out in the article that from histological examinations of hundreds of Egyptian mummies, cancer was very rare in biblical days. They mention that cancer, particularly childhood cancer, has dramatically increased since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. That makes sense to me, since many of the toxins we know today as carcinogens were used in factory workplaces, disposed of as pollutants in air and water, or wound up as contaminants in food, and the end of the 19th century brought the advent of nuclear and electromagnetic high-energy radiation. For example, x-rays and radioactivity. As an aside, if you're interested in uh, the connection between pollution and cancer, uh, Google the phrase Love Canal. It It was an American environmental tragedy. Here's a quote from that same Medical Express article. Radiological surveys of of mummies from the Cairo Museum and other museums in Europe have also failed to reveal evidence of cancer. As the team moved through the ages, it was not until the 17th century that they found descriptions of operations for breast and other cancers and the first reports in scientific literature of distinctive tumors that have occurred in the past 200 years, such as scrotal cancer in chimney sweeps in 1775, nasal cancer in snuff users in 1761, and Hodgkin's disease in 1832, end of quote. So far, anthropological data suggest that cancer is is more a disease of modern living than a disease with roots in ancient times. Okay, let's get back to the subject at hand, which is the relationship between the food we eat and the risk of getting cancer. It may seem hard to believe, but some of the foods we eat can be deadly. Back in January 2002, CBS News published an online article entitled The Connection Between Diet and Cancer. Over time, observations were made that certain methods of preparing food or storing food generated carcinogens or cancer agents. For example, meat cooked at very high temperatures produced a class of cancer-causing chemicals called heterocyclic amines. Another class called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs were formed in cooked foods exposed to smoke, such as during the barbecuing of meat. A few episodes ago, In podcast number 23, I talked about acrylamide, a toxic chemical formed in the baking or frying of carbohydrate-rich foods like potato chips or french fries. Food stored under conditions where mold can form might might become contaminated with compounds called aflatoxins. Favorable conditions include high moisture and temperature. Aflatoxins have been isolated from all major cereal crops like wheat, rice, and corn, and from staples such as cassava, chilies, cottonseed, peanuts, tree nuts, and spices. Then there are nitroso compounds derived from the food additive sodium nitrite, which is added to processed meats like bologna. It acts as a preservative and curing agent. I talked more extensively about sodium nitrite in episode number nine called eating a bologna sandwich. In October 2015, Stories started appearing warning against the dangers of red meat and cured meats. An article from StraightTimes.com stated that the World Health Organization, the WHO, or WHO, announced that processed meats caused colon cancer. Quote The analysis of 800 studies from around the world by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the IARC, found sufficient evidence in humans that the consumption of processed meat causes colorectal cancer. The category includes meat that has been salted, cured, fermented, or smoked, hot dogs, sausages, corned beef, dried meat like beef jerky, and canned meat or meat-based sauces. For an individual, the risk of getting cancer from eating processed meat was statistically small, the agency said, but increases with the amount of meat consumed. Wow, please banish the thought of all those bologna sandwiches I ate as a kid. Back to the article. As for processed meat, the red meat risk was mainly for cancer of the colon and rectum, but also the pancreas and prostate, said the report. The agency cited research attributing about 34,000 cancer deaths per year worldwide to diets high in processed meat. As for red meat, if the suspected link were to be confirmed, it would account for some 50,000 cancer deaths worldwide. Now, the numbers were dwarfed by the estimated 1 million cancer deaths per year due to tobacco smoking, 600,000 deaths from alcohol use, and more than 200,000 due to air pollution, said the agency end of quote. So the takeaway message is that diets high in red and processed meats can promote cancer, but the risk is not as great as a bad smoking habit, a high alcohol intake, and living in the atmosphere of Beijing. Now at this point you may be asking, are there any foods that don't cause cancer? After all, we're always seeing media blurbs about the latest announcements of this or that food that's going to kill us. True, they're all over the internet. Just a cursory glance or a little bit of digging reveals that most of these so-called news reports are hokey. As a scientist, I cringe when I read those articles. So full of errors, unsubstantiated information, lack of citations, or the referencing of poorly done studies, and often just outright foolishness. They really take advantage of the vast majority of people who are not educated or trained in science. Here's one example from an organization called The Truth About Cancer, which published an article around January 2017 entitled Top 10 Cancer Causing Foods, Understanding What Causes Cancer by Ty Bollinger, a certified public accountant weightlifter, and health freedom advocate, who, by the way, has absolutely no background in science. That article was shared 203,000 times. Yes, 203,000 times. Yikes. No wonder people are confused and confounded. But it's not just made-up science facts that are problematic. There are countless articles published in peer-reviewed journals that can contribute to the massive amount of misinformation out there about the connection between diet and disease. This whole subject was addressed in an article published in Science-Based Medicine in January 2013 entitled, Everything We Eat Causes Cancer. Sort of. The author mentions Several researchers, uh, John Ioannidis, a professor of medicine and of health research and policy at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Jonathan Schoenfeld, a radiation oncologist who published uh, a paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, where the two guys researched 50 unique ingredients mentioned in a well-known cookbook for their connections to cancer. Here's what they found. 80% of the ingredients had at least one study examining cancer risk. That's 40 ingredients, including veal, salt, pepper, spice, flour, egg, bread, pork, butter, tomato, lemon, duck, onion, celery, carrot, parsley, mace, sherry, olive, Mushroom, tripe, milk, cheese, coffee, bacon, sugar, lobster, potato, beef, lamb, mustard, nuts, wine, peas, corn, cinnamon, cayenne, orange, tea, rum, and raisin. Don't ask me to repeat that. 39% of the studies they found concluded that the studied ingredient conferred an increased risk of malignancy. 33% concluded that there was a decreased risk. 5% concluded that there was a borderline statistically significant effect, and 23% concluded that there was no evidence of a clearly increased or decreased risk. So, food eaters, what's a consumer to do? Who should we believe? What's the truth? All good questions. Here's what I do. I try to look at the original research behind the claims. If no references are provided for the health claims, then I automatically reject them. Were the studies published in a peer-reviewed journal or just a popular magazine or newspaper? If the latter, I reject the claims if no references are provided. Most of the time you can find an abstract, that is a short summary, online to get uh, knowledge about the research study. Were the researchers credentialed and experts in the field of study? Who were they being paid by? If they were funded by the grocery manufacturers of America to claim how wonderful potato chips are, then I would question the validity of their findings. I also look at how big the study is. If it's an epidemiology study, Uh, That's a study where there's research and analysis of the causes and spread of health and disease conditions in defined populations. Then I'll look at the scope of the study. Was it done using a piddly 50 participants, or were there 50,000 people involved? I give more validity to the super-huge studies where errors in recording, analysis, and interpretation of the data get minimized. Some examples of these studies include the Nurses Health Study, Framington Heart Study, British Doctors Study, Adventist Health Study, and the China Study, among others. Let's take a few moments to look at the China Study, the largest nutritional study of its kind. In the early 1970s, the first premier of the People's Republic of China, Zhou Enlai, was dying of cancer. He helped initiate the China Health and Nutrition Survey, the largest survey ever completed to date, and is still going on to examine cancer types and rates across, across China. Then, in the early 1980s, scientists in China and America collaborated to conduct a massive project to determine the associations, if any, between diet and disease. In each of the 65 counties in China, 100 people between the ages of 35 and 64 were selected to participate in the reporting of foods eaten, lifestyle, and health problems. Pulled blood samples in each village were analyzed for 109 nutritional, viral, hormonal, and other blood indicators. Also measured were 24 urinary factors, mortality rates for more than 48 diseases, 36 food constituents, and 60 diet and lifestyle factors across 17 geographic and climatic factors. Here are some of the many associations that were found in this study. One, the, um, the lower the amount of fat consumed, particularly animal fat, the lower the risk of breast cancer. Two, The lower amount of animal protein consumed, the lower the risk of breast cancer. Three, higher intakes of fiber reduce the risk of rectal and colon cancers. And four, the lower the cholesterol levels, the lower the risk of many types of cancer. The data from the China study uh, were all about associations and did not actually prove which diet components caused which diseases. But The findings pointed to the overall conclusion that diet is paramount in determining the onset of disease. If you're interested, uh, one of the researchers, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, wrote a book about the China study findings and his interpretations. A link is provided in the show notes. So, finally, that brings me to the big news announcement issued in early January 2018 and the reason for today's show. There was a French study published in the British Medical Journal entitled Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods and Cancer Risk, Results from Nutrinet Sante Prospective Cohort. First off, there are many different kinds of scientific studies. This one is called a prospective cohort, which is a long study that follows over time a group of people who differ with respect to certain factors, in this case diet, to determine how those factors affect rates of a certain outcome, in this case cancer. This was a big study and partly funded by the French National Cancer Institute. It followed 105,000 adults aged 18 to 73 who kept track of their consumption of 3,300 food items over nine years. The group was composed of 78% women, and 22% men. The researchers were particularly interested in the consumption of ultra-processed foods. Now what are ultra-processed foods? Also called UPF. Listen carefully, because you're likely to hear this term over and over again in the coming years. Ultra-processed foods are those whose packaging contain long lists of man-made ingredients such as additives, preservatives, flavorings, and colorings, and other substances not commonly used in culinary preparations, such as hydrogenated oils, modified starches, and protein isolates and using industrial processes like hydrogenation, hydrolysis, extrusion, and pre-frying. The foods also typically have high levels of salt, sugar, and fat. Now, I've been talking ad nauseum about these types of food since the beginning of this podcast series. Now, there's a food classification system called NOVA, that's N-O-V-A, which places commercial foods into four categories. NOVA-1, is unprocessed or minimally processed foods like fresh, frozen, ground, or dried foods. Nova 2 category is processed culinary ingredients such as salt, vegetable oils, and sugar. Nova 3 includes processed foods like canned vegetables with added salt, sugar coated fruits, meats preserved with brine, cheese, and unpackaged breads. And finally, there's Nova 4 which is the category for ultra-processed foods, which were named earlier. It was noted that people consuming high levels of UPF tend to be younger, smoke more, and exercise less. Here was the general finding from the study. A 10% increase in consumption of ultra-processed foods was linked to a 12% rise in cancers that's worth repeating, a 10% increase in consumption of ultra-processed foods was linked to a 12% rise in cancers. The results were very strong, consistent, and compelling. Their statistics showed that eating 50 grams, which is a little less than two ounces, of processed meats daily increases the chances of developing colorectal cancer by 18%. The lead author of the study, Mathilde Tuvier said, quote, "But we have to be cautious. These results need to be confirmed in other prospective studies." End quote. One commentator in another article said, quote, "This study is a kick in the right direction and a well-founded confirmation that overconsumption of UPF tangibly increases cancer probabilities. It therefore makes sense to watch what and how much we eat. And a good way to avoid UPF is shunning foods with too many additives or ingredients. Another to end quote, another reviewer said that quote, according to recent surveys, 25 to 50 percent of the daily intake in the U.S., Canada, Europe, New Zealand, and Brazil come from ultra-processed foods. In the French study, processed foods made up an average of 19 percent of the total diets of participants. These findings are particularly worrisome, since cancer rates worldwide are climbing. Globally, 14.1 million cancer cases were recorded in 2012. By 2035, that number is expected to rise to 24 million. In America, around 1.7 million new cancer diagnoses are given each year, and over 609,000 deaths occur as a result of cancer, the good news, great, there's good news, is that 42% of cancer cases are preventable. 19% are attributed to smoking, for example, while another 18% are related to a person's diet. Processed foods, in addition to increasing one's cancer risk, also, however, contribute to weight gain, which can further elevate risk, end quote. Here's a 10-minute clip from a British medical journal interview with two of the study's authors, Matilda Tuviers, as mentioned before. She's a senior researcher in nutritional epidemiology, and Bernard Schrauer, pharmacist and PhD candidate in epidemiology. Now, they both have a strong French accent, so you may want to turn up your attention level.
1: So you've been studying ultra-processed foods, um, and I know what processed foods are, uh, I think I do anyway, but what exactly are ultra-processed foods? How do they differ from um, from the kind of, I don't know, everyday food that you might uh, buy in a grocer?
2: In order to categorize our foods and beverage based on their food processing degree, uh, we use the classification uh, named NOVA, which has been developed by uh, researchers in the University of Sao Paulo mm-hmm. and this classification categorized foods and beverages into four groups. Uh, the first the first group is unprocessed or minimally processed food. The second one is processed culinary ingredients. The third group is processed food and the fourth is ultra-processed food. So to answer your question regarding the differences mm-hmm. between processed and ultra-processed, uh, normally we consider here that uh, food which has been prepared by adding salt, uh, for example, or sugar or food that that has been prepared by a simple industrial technology will be classified into processed. However, uh, everything uh, which has been prepared, uh, for example, mass produced breads, uh, sweet or savory packaged snacks, whatever that has been hydrogenated, Mm-hmm. Uh, modified starches, protein, uh, proteins, everything that has undergone an industrial process yes. by adding additives or contact materials or uh, substances other than culinary ingredients.
1: So the kind of thing that when you look at the back of the packet and you see the ingredient list, you can't recognize half of the things on there, they don't seem to actually be foodstuffs.
2: Yeah, uh, that, that's not a good thing. I mean, I, <laughs> when you don't recognize stuff, I mean, most of the things are usually additives. So when you have additives other than salt or just sugar, then the product is most probably ultra-processed. Sure.
3: And maybe we can, can give um, a couple of examples to distinguish between processed and ultra processed. For for instance, when you talk about uh, fruit compotes, if you only add um, sugar, it's considered as processed food. But uh, when talking about fruit desserts with added sugar, but also texturizing agents, colorants, <laughs> uh, they should be considered as ultra processed foods. And it's the same when you, you talk about uh, canned uh, salted vegetables, they are only processed foods, but um, um, when they are industrially cooked or fried and uh, seasoned, uh, or marinated in industrial sauces with uh, added flavorings and so on, they are considered as uh, ultra-processed vegetables.
1: Great. So, that's very clear. Thank you. Um, now, these have been around, obviously, for a while, I mean, I think all my life, um, there has been some sort of element of, of ultra-processed food in my diet, um, but I'm just wondering, do you have any data on... Uh, you know, how prevalent consumptions of these are? Has consumption gone up over time? You know, are we eating more of these, that kind of thing? Any idea of of that kind of pattern?
3: Yeah, sure. In fact, uh, during the the last decades and in many countries in Europe, in the US and in uh, other countries such in Brazil, for instance, um, diets really have shifted towards a dramatic increase in ultra processed food consumption. These products, there are several studies suggesting that they represent uh, now between 25 and 50% of total daily energy intake. And uh, in France, when we compare the previous um, national survey called uh, Inca 2 performed in uh, 2006, compared to the one performed just um, uh, last year, so maybe uh, about 10 years um, before, there was a dramatic increase in uh, uh, processed food uh, consumption and so also ultra processed food
1: consumption. Mm. So if you're uh, eating it in France, the country that Invented cuisine, then we can assume that everyone else is eating it as well.
3: Yes, in France also. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: Um, so I'm just, you know, uh, we've already, as we discussed, there are lots of things in there that um, that make it ultra processed, and and the. The method of of processing, you know, the industrial sort of techniques of frying and, and everything else, um, that might be adding things into the uh, into the mix as well. So, um, you're looking specifically at the link between ultra processed food and risk of cancer. So, um, what might be the sort of underlying? biological cause of that. Do you have any idea about that?
2: I mean, we, we had several hypotheses that uh, it's the bad nutritional quality of these ultra-processed foods that might be involved in cancer risk. Mm-hmm. And there's another hypothesis, which could be that the food additives or the uh, packaging material that are involved during the processing of these foods uh, that can be involved in, in cancer risk.
3: And the other point, maybe also the the, the neophob compounds uh, that could be formed during the process, for example, when you heat um, products, you can yeah. have uh, acrylamide and mm-hmm. so on. So mm. these are the four uh, main hypotheses that, um, yes, we, we, we put forward to, to explain our results.
1: Mm, so it could be either adding stuff into the diet that, that might be carcinogenic or else potentially pushing out um, things like Fruit and vegetables that we know have a protective effect.
3: Yes, uh, there there has been studies um, about the nutritional quality of ultra processed food, and yes. uh, really they they uh, as an average, but they appear poorer in terms of vitamins, minerals, dietary fibers, uh, which um, may have protective effects uh, for cancer risk and other chronic diseases. Uh, and they also are often richer in terms of uh, saturated fat, uh, fats and salt, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was uh, one of our uh, hypotheses that this nutritional quality, poorer nutritional quality, could explain part of our results. But we uh, performed several analyses that indicated uh, that um, uh, apparently uh, the relationship between ultraprocessed food and cancer risk was not only mediated by, by this poorer nutritional quality, but um, um, apparently by other compounds such as maybe additives or neoformatics. Compounds yes. and material of contact.
1: Thank you. That's um, that is interesting. Now, um, let's talk about the the study that you've actually done here. Um, it's called the NutriNet-Sante study. So, um, you haven't just set this up to look at uh, ultra-processed food. So, so what's the who's this cohort, and and what are you trying to study with them generally?
3: So the, the NutriNet Santé cohort study is a web-based cohort that we launched in 2009 and that we coordinate here at uh, the Nutritional Epidemiology Research Team of uh, INSERM. Mm-hmm. Um, today we have included uh, about 160,000 uh, volunteers uh, who regularly answer to uh, questionnaires and in particular uh, regarding their diet, but also their physical activity, dietary supplement use, and many, many other uh, dietary behaviors. Um, and we follow them in time, um, uh, and we measure the appearance of uh, chronic diseases such as cancers, for for instance. And so, uh, this is a very um, big um, uh, cohort about mm. nutrition and health relationships, with very detailed information about uh, diet and dietary behaviours.
1: Mm. And um, do you have? Do you also collect the kind of information that will allow you to? Um, you know, adjust for socioeconomic um, place and, and, and things like that, diet, sorry, exercise, other things that might have a, uh, um, an effect on, on the kind of thing that you're studying.
2: Uh, so uh, yes we uh, we have many uh, factors and variables which we can use in uh, in our models as adjustment factors such as social demographic factors like uh, income like educational level uh, among other lifestyle factors like uh, smoking like physical activity and we also collect uh, anthropometric uh, variables such as BMI, uh, height other uh, data regarding the health status of the participant such as their their family history of diseases uh, like here for example we adjusted for family history of cancer
1: so it seems like you've got a, a very rich data set from which to to pull um, some signals and also to to then you know, mitigate for confounding potential confounding factors. Um, now, obviously, this study is observational in nature, um, and uh, so we have to, to uh, you know bear that in mind when we're thinking about causality and things. Um, but could you take us through then the sort of top line of, of what it is when you looked at people's consumption of ultra processed foods and compared it to um, their cancer risk?
3: The, the, the main result uh, in, in this study is Thanks. that uh, we observed that when we increased uh, the share of ultra processed food in our diet by a 10%, there was uh, an increased risk of uh, overall cancer, and also more specifically breast cancer, of uh, more than 10 persons. This is the main result in this observational cohort study.
0: That was was just a portion of the interview. Check out the show notes for a link to the full interview of the authors of the French study and also the British Medical Journal article. I hope that you were able to understand that conversation. As far as I know, the Nutrinet Sante study is continuing, and we're likely to hear a great deal more about ultra-processed foods and their links to chronic disease. Stay tuned. It's that time, food eaters, for the new product segment of the show, where I introduce a new food available now, or soon to be, on grocery store shelves. In the last show, I mentioned a Krispy Kreme donut invention that listed 100 ingredients on the food label. Yowser! Talk about ultra processed foods. Now, maybe the French uh, should conduct a nutrition study on commercial donut consumption. For today, I'm going to swing the pendulum the other way and look at an incredibly healthy snack. Have you ever had a Lara bar? They're usually found in the health food section of stores. The Laura Bar was invented by Laura American in Denver, Colorado in 2003, and she wondered why she couldn't find a snack that not only was tasty and filling, but also was good for her body. Working out of her kitchen, she developed simple energy bars out of whole foods like nuts, seeds, fruits, and natural flavorings typically the bars have less than six ingredients. Her local company, called Hum Foods, took off slowly, but by 2007 her products were being sold nationally and internationally. In 2008, the company was sold to General Mills, you know, a big company gobbling up a little one. But fortunately, so far, the products haven't changed. In recent years, some new Lara bars formulated with superfoods have hit the marketplace. One such product is organic hazelnut, hemp, and cacao. The ingredients are simply dates, hazelnuts, cacao nibs, hemp seeds, almonds, and cocoa powder. This product has absolutely no additives. A single 1.6 ounce bar, has 210 calories with 11 grams of fat, no cholesterol, 23 grams of carbs, including 16 grams of sugar and four grams of fiber, plus there's four grams of protein and no added sugars. All the sugars come from the whole ingredients. No need to worry about toxic pesticides or herbicides since all the ingredients are organic. This high-end bar sells for around $1.99. Well, it's time to wrap up the show. Here are some key take-home messages. People have long suspected, including myself, that the thousands of artificial ingredients used in commercial foods could impact the occurrence of chronic diseases, like cancer. Finally, scientific studies are being conducted to investigate these possibilities. After all, many of the ingredients found in ultra-processed foods are new to the human body and have been around for 100 years or less. And every year, new additives are being added to the mix. How do our bodies handle these chemicals? Are there synergistic effects? Are the chemicals broken down? And if so, do the metabolites create toxic effects? Are any of these chemicals or their breakdown products carcinogenic, teratogenic, or mutagenic? Of course, this whole subject is complicated due to the many factors that influence disease causation and progression, such as obesity, smoking, pollution, workplace hazards, drug use, and longer lifespans. Of particular interest is the compounding fact that a person eating a diet high in ultra-processed foods is likely eating a diet with low amounts of grains, legumes, vegetables, and fruits, all of which provide phytochemicals to suppress the initiation of cancer. Now, that's quite an irony. What do you think, food eaters? Are manufacturing companies likely to change their ways based on new research into the connection between chronic diseases and ultra-processed foods? Ultimately, if the French study is correct, all of us have great control over our health simply by choosing not to eat all the crappy food options. Yes, we are surrounded on all sides by ultra-processed foods, but there are other healthier food choices out there. Do we have the fortitude and the willpower to make the best choices? The next show is going to be a breakthrough episode, a -a one-of-a-kind. I'll be tackling fast food restaurants, which, after all, are just mysterious alternative sources of processed foods. There are no ingredient labels on fast food wrappers, so it takes much more effort to find out what you're actually eating. Watch this episode, which will appear uh, at the end of May 2018. To all you food munchers out there, I appreciate you tuning in. If you could take the time to leave a review, good, bad, or indifferent, at the iTunes store, that would be fantastic. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. It's at www.podbean.com, or you can just simply Google the phrase Food Labels Revealed. And, of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet. If you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this podcast or just want to say hello, feel free to drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed, all one phrase, at gmail.com. And lastly, if you think your family, friends, or associates might be interested in this podcast, please tweet or post a link through your social media outlets to get the word out. Well, I'll see you next month, and in the meantime, remember, if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. Here's a new outro piece called Fluffing the Duck, composed by Kevin McLeod.